learning how valuable it is to like create these like online communities and creating a connection between people who are part of that audience, but also between the brand and that audience. And like all of that's intertwined in a really compelling way. I think that is like the driving force behind the creator world. And that is why I'm super excited about like the rise of individually operated or small teams of people like working on building what are effectively media businesses. this episode, I talked to Reed DeRamus and it's such an interesting world. So he comes from the video streaming world, from Hulu, HBO Max, Crunchyroll, right? And now he's working in the creator space. And so what I think is fascinating is the way that he's taking what he learned from these big streaming products, you know, that are going out to mass consumers that are also a low dollar amount, right? You know, $10 a month, $20, $50 a month. And he's taken that what he's learned and he's going into the creator space and helping people with paid newsletters, with uh, courses and all of that, you know, really bring these growth habits, growth techniques into their like solo or small team creator businesses. So we spend this episode riffing on business models, uh, the analytics that you should pay attention to as an individual creator, um, just all kinds of things, branding, positioning, local meetups. It's, it's a fun episode. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Reed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, so uh, I want to start in two places. First, I want to go and and talk about what Yem is, what you're working on right now, um, and how you know you're serving serving newsletter creators. Uh, and then we'll dive in, and go back, and, and pick up a little bit of your backstory of coming from the video world and you know this whole the business and large marketing teams. And then that'll help people understand even more of uh, like the value that you're bringing to the newsletter creators that you're working with. So kicking things off, what are you working on right now? Yeah, so um, our company is called Yim, and we provide email automation for newsletters with like a pretty tight focus right now on paid newsletters. And um, that really uh, just revolves around like better user onboarding, free to paid upsell emails, and churn prevention emails. And like some of the problems we're trying to solve there is we notice like a lot of news- newsletters like blasting out offers to the entire email base or not being able to like automate some of the you know, emails around payment failures or uh, people who are set to cancel and just from giving them a gentle reminder that their renewal is coming up. Uh, And certainly onboarding, because you know that first month with a subscriber is like a very key period. So Mm -hmm. really important to kind of establish a relationship and and, um, make sure they understand what they signed up for. Uh, So that's really what the, the core product revolves around today. And most of our customers are on uh, Substack with a few that are also on Ghost. And yeah, it's going pretty well. Like it's not something that's gonna like double your subscriber count overnight, but it's like one of those like uh, things that's a really great part of your overall uh, growth strategy and something that provides like a reliable, consistent lift and and especially for our paid newsletters, lift in subscription revenue. We're averaging about a 7% lift in MRR each month. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where we're at right now. Nice. Yeah, there will be a lot of fun things to dive into because a lot of creators, when they're looking at their newsletters, they're not paying attention to the data and analytics side. Like uh, you have a whole background, you know, coming from Hulu and then as uh, VP of growth at HBO Max and right in that whole world where you and I, like when we were just talking about growing, you know, whole platforms, things like forecasts, LTV, uh, yeah. customer acquisition costs, you know, all of that lifecycle marketing. It's just, it's all part of the stack 
but for yeah. most creators, it's not. So we'll dive into all of that, you know, for everyone listening in, it'll be really a conversation about the, like the business of newsletters and those, those metrics and running it like a, a much uh, bigger company. But let's, to give context for all of that, let's go back and uh, I'd love to hear, you know, kind of where we can go back to where you started your career or somewhere yeah. in there, wherever you want to pick it up, either, you know, Hulu or somewhere earlier. Yeah. How you got into the space. Let's start with Hulu. Cause like, I am very fond of that experience and in, in those years, but like when I got there, I was barely qualified for like any job at all. And when I got there, streaming video was like pretty early. Talking 2012 timeframe, right? Yeah. My experience with like using Netflix at that point was like in college trying to stream something on a PlayStation 3 and it was like an awful set of movies and the, the video player would like buffer nonstop. So yeah, that, that's the state of streaming video back then. And so uh, when I got to Hulu, barely qualified for any job and we had just launched Hulu Plus, which was our video subscription product at the time, um, which was also ad supported, by the way. I mean, it was like the home run of, of business models. You had ad revenue and subscription revenue and meaningful on both sides. Which was always so weird to me. Like, I remember as a consumer being confused of like paying for Hulu Plus, I think because there was a particular show I wanted or something. Yes. And then also there was still ads. And I was like, hey. <laughs> the reason Hulu really got off the ground was because it had next day broadcast television back when that was like the most coveted. I mean, it, look, nothing against yeah. broadcast television today, but like Netflix and Amazon, like all the streamers are now providing most of the high quality shows that people talk about. But back then it was broadcast TV. And and uh, we had a relationship with Viacom and some other cable channels that this was like the place, if you didn't want to buy the cable bundle, pay TV bundle, Hulu was a great product for you. Right. And we could run ads on broadcast TV the next day because it was the only place you could watch that if you didn't have a DVR or uh, these are probably That's such right. like old terms that people are not going to really well, know. Well, it's funny that like we're, we're talking nine, 10 years ago. And, yeah. and so you're like, yeah, Netflix was the same. Right. And then you think about it, you're like, no, it wasn't like, it was a DVD. It was mostly a DVD service. Yeah. They were mailing people. Was that 2014, 2015 that they split the, out the DVD product? Uh, Quickster was yeah. 2012. It was okay. 2013. Maybe I remember it was while we were at Hulu. Okay. And at the time, you know, everybody within Hulu was drinking the Kool-Aid. We were like, we're going to disrupt pay TV. We're going to like, you know, kill the, the cable bundle. And our owners, this is so naive. I mean, I don't know if naive is the right word, but our owners were uh, huge media companies, uh, Comcast, Fox, Disney. And so uh, we were walking a really tight line between competing against their core products and trying to grow our, our core product, which was competing with Netflix. Right. And um, when they did that, it was wild. You know, I think they lost like a crazy amount of market value or a uh, uh, market cap when they made yep. that announcement. And they, they, I think learned a lot because they've increased prices multiple times since then. I think they just oh, yeah. announced that they're increasing their top tier to $20. Yeah. I was going to say, I remember going from $8 and then I, I don't, I'm paying something like 18 now. And I think you're yeah. right. It's going to be 20. So it yeah. keeps climbing. Yeah. And nobody talks about it. It's not like crushing their market. If anything, it usually kind of has a nice 
you know, creative effect to their, their share price. But yeah, that was, it was wild to see that. So anyway, you know, I get to Hulu and... Working as an analyst at Hulu. Yeah, they hand me Hulu Plus because nobody thinks that it's actually going to work. Nobody thinks that people are going to buy video over the internet. And uh, at the time, our marketing budget was like effectively zero. We'd had like a Super Bowl ad that like blew up. Alec Baldwin was in it. It was really funny, really well done. And so our marketing budget was zero. Nobody thought it was going to work. And there was no playbook for like how to invest in digital marketing. You know, Mm -hmm. Facebook and Google had like very primitive ad products at the time. And we were kind of making up stuff as we went in terms of like reporting back up to the board. These are like senior execs at big media companies. And we're saying, hey, we're going to carve out this much marketing budget. We're going to spend it on these channels. And this is what a good customer acquisition cost is. And this is what a good, you know, lifetime value is. I remember we had uh, like an enormous conversation around churn rate versus cohort-based retention rates. They mm-hmm. kept like looking at our churn rate and comparing it to their pay TV bundle when they were like a super established right. traditional media business with super long-term commitments, like multiple year agreements. And their churn rate was super, their monthly churn rate was super low. We were at the opposite end. We were like massively high growth. Uh, our absolute volume was super low. Right. Um, and so, and no commitment. You could cancel any time. That was part of like the huge value prop that we, that all the streaming companies were pushing early on. And so our churn rate, monthly churn rate was really high. And so we had to learn ourselves, like this is not the best metric to look at. We need to look at retention rates. Like how, what percentage of people that are paying us make it to the second billing cycle, third billing cycle, fourth billing cycle. That was the backbone of LTV. And that's what we, you know, we ended up talking about like earn back periods and CLV to CLV to CAC ratios. And there was just nothing on the internet about like what to do, like how to, how to like grow a subscription media business. Right. So we had to learn and um, incredible like uh, experience. Our budget went from like zero to a hundred million within like a couple of years. And subscribers went from like a million, roughly a million when we got there to like 5 million uh, by the time we left. And ultimately what happened, this super fascinating story. I hope somebody like writes a book about it, but basically I think we had, we were growing really quickly. And again, you know, we're walking that tightrope between uh, comp- being competitive with the, the pay TV, TV bundle and trying to like grow. And ultimately, I think the, you know, execs started coming in from Disney and Fox and bigger companies and our leadership team kind of cycled out and went to different places. And you had kind of like the, I had gotten there late for this like cohort of of people at Hulu, but you had people who'd been there for like five years since the start of the company Mm -hmm. who started cycling out. And that's when um, I ended up going to Crunchyroll. Uh, So during this period of like cycling out, the company was up for sale and uh, Guggenheim made a bid, DirecTV made a bid, and importantly, AT&T and Turner Group made a bid. And uh, the Turner Group is like a media, it's a well-known media investment firm now, but back then it had just kind of started. And um, through their due diligence, we kind of got to know the team there. And that deal falls through and that's when uh, like execs from the big media companies start coming in. Mm-hmm. We kept in touch with the churning group. A couple months go by, they reach out and say, hey, we, we acquired the fourth, we made a majority investment in the fourth biggest streaming service. 
And I was like, holy shit, like that's amazing. Uh, it has to be like something that I'm familiar with. And they couldn't really tell us. They said it's kind of niche. Uh, eventually they announced that they had made a majority investment in Crunchyroll, which mm-hmm. is a uh, anime streaming platform. And at the time it was the fourth biggest behind Amazon, Netflix, and Hulu. But not like if you're not in that world, it doesn't have the same name recognition to any extent that the others do. It was, it was a really fascinating experience going from like a broad market product like Hulu yeah. to a very niche, passionate group. Like, so I get to crunch. Uh, so in, what ended up happening, a group of us from Hulu end up going and, and working at Crunchyroll and kind of building out the growth function there. And that included like business, uh, like finance and, and that, that kind of stuff, but also analytics, marketing and distribution, and a little bit of product because there wasn't any product team at the time. The, the company was, you know, maybe 35 uh, people and it was split between like uh, community and brand. So people who really cared about Crunchyroll and really were huge anime fans. And then the other half were like engineers. And those were also huge anime fans. So we get there on the first day, we're eating lunch, getting to know people. And they're like, hey, what's your favorite anime show? And we were like, uh, never really seen any anime. And that was like a whoa, how'd you get a job here? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. So huge learning curve. And we, we tried to apply everything that we did at Hulu to Crunchyroll. We quickly realized that um, you, can't, you can't do that. Like there's things that are different about like a small, passionate niche community and a um, big general like media company. Mm-hmm. So that was like a big theme of being at Crunchyroll, just learning like how valuable it is to like create these like online communities and it, and creating a connection between people who are part of that audience, but also between the brand and that audience. And like all of that's intertwined in a really compelling way. I think that is like the driving force behind the creator world. Yep. And that is why I'm super excited about like the rise of, of individually operated or small team uh, small teams of people like working on building what are effectively media businesses. Yeah. There's a lot to dive into there. Maybe before we dive into the, the creator side of it, what what was the path from Crunchyroll? You know, there was an acquisition there and then going into uh, HBO Max. So that was a, a bit of an internal move. Um, AT&T went on like a pretty big media buying spree. Yep. They bought DirecTV and then they bought Warner Media which was an enormous company, $90 billion deal, I think. Um, and when they did that, they also uh, bought out Otter Media, which was like the investment vehicle that they set up with the Turning Group. And you know they had full screen in there and they also had Crunchyroll, uh, Hello Sunshine, uh, which is like a production company and a, a few other like assets. So we end up becoming part of AT&T through that deal. And I was always like a huge fan of HBO. And so I was like really hoping to like uh, start working on anything HBO related after the deal went through. Yeah. But man, I mean, it, it's like, so the way Warner Media was run in the past was three distinct companies and enormous companies, Turner, Warner Brothers, and HBO. And they all do very pretty different things and are really good at what they do. And uh, so the deal goes through, I end up, uh, getting the opportunity to go join um, like a early team, basically like a team that was created to work on and launch HBO Max. And uh, um, I was lucky 
that Andy Forcell, who is now like the GM of HBO Max, got kind of picked to get this thing launched. Mm-hmm. And so we'd had a relationship with him through, uh, you know, Otter Media. And uh, so I went over there and just like tried to tell him all the stuff that we had learned about our experience and help get HBO Max into market. And uh, we had learned a lot because we'd done something similar where we tried to use Crunchyroll to launch a new product that was like a bundle of niche streaming services, including Crunchyroll and Funimation, both anime services. But also, um, you know, we had like a, a, a Nick, a Nickelodeon channel from Viacom in oh, there. Yeah. So, and it was called Verve, VRV, which is still live today. Um, but we were basically trying to combine more uh, value, like bundle up streaming, niche streaming services, and using Crunchyroll as an anchor to build a, a more compelling media product around that. And that's effectively what HBO Max is. You know, it's like taking the best from Warner Brothers, the best from Turner, and the best from HBO, bringing it all together. And so, but there's a lot of nuances with doing that. And so that's, I just tried to like help out from a growth and operation standpoint. What was one of the biggest lessons you learned in that process, right? Because HBO Max is a huge product and it was a very high profile launch and, yeah. and all of that. So the one thing going into it was like, I was unsure of what it would feel like being in a big company. Mm-hmm. Crunchyroll was like 35 people when I got there, got up to, you know, 500 or so uh, by the time I left. Um, but Warner Media was like tens of thousands of people. Yeah, another level. <laughs> and the other thing is like the HBO Max team was created, and this was during this was right after COVID kind of started, and so you had pretty obvious signs of like downward pressure on theatrical uh, businesses, yeah. and cable was also getting hurt a little bit with at least initially with ad spend kind of drying up a little bit because nobody knew what was going to happen. And so everybody was jockeying for like to kind of join the, the HBO team. And it was just really, it was a great learning experience to see all of that kind of play out from within the, the company. But like, uh, you know, beyond the, the personal aspect of it, um, it was kind of getting back to like that broad market, like you're like the marketing budgets are much bigger. The media assets are much huger. Um, and generally, uh, you know, trying to, you're trying to, that product is squarely trying to compete with Netflix. Like it's trying to get as many subscribers across the globe as possible. And that just wasn't, you know, we took a brief exit from that kind of world. So it was kind of back to the, the grind of, you know, building a big global subscription business. Right. Okay. So then going from there to you know, effectively running growth and then building a growth product for creators is a, there's a lot of overlap, but on the surface, it's a very different, um, uh, very different world. What made you make the jump into like helping all these creators grow their paid newsletters? So back in like 2016, I'd, I'd come across Patreon and I saw some of my favorite creators on there uh, as like the top earners. So like Tim Irvin, Wait But Why, he had like a very profound impact on how I thought. And I just think I love his writing. And um, he was up there. The Green Brothers, a bunch of like uh, creators on YouTube that I was a big fan of that are like yeah. edutainment creators. So Green Brothers, Minute Physics, Minute Earth, and, and some others. And it just struck me like th- uh, these individuals or small teams of, of creators probably have the same questions or opportunities that we're trying to capture 
uh, with or, or solve within the um, streaming companies. And wouldn't it be cool if you could build like a growth team for each individual uh, creator or small team, knowing that they may not have the resources to like build yeah. out like a big growth engine that most of these consumer companies or media companies have. So like bringing the data-driven growth engine of like a Netflix or a Disney to a YouTube creator or like the New York Times to a newsletter publisher. And so 2020 uh, was like a huge year for the creator world where Patreon, uh, Teachable, OnlyFans, Substack, uh, I'm sure ConvertKit, yep. all of these platforms are just exploding. And I, for the first time, saw clear examples of creators hitting exit velocity and needing growth support. Right. And uh, so I felt like this was a good time to make a run at the idea. And the first step was, it's a super ambiguous idea, right? Like building, let's build a growth engine for creators. And execution is always like way harder than, you know, any idea. So we reached out to Anthony Pompliano to be our first customer and help shape the product. And, uh, you know, the pitch was like, hey, let, let us come in and run growth for you. Um, at the time, he had like kind of the usual suspects of, of distribution with Twitter, uh, YouTube, podcast. But also he had like newer creator products around the cohort-based class, job board, uh, rolling fund, and a paid newsletter. And, uh, you know, eventually, I remember my pitch was like, uh, like, hey, man, let, you know, let us come in and run growth. Like we, we got some good learnings. I'll, I'll spend money out of my pocket on like growth, like for advertising or whatever uh, to, to help. And he was like, dude, that's totally not necessary. <laughs> so, um, uh, so he ended up uh, letting us like kind of run growth. We gravitated towards the pomp letter uh, uh -huh. as like the kind of focus. And because it felt familiar to Crunchyroll and Hulu, which are freemium subscription businesses. And that's basically what his newsletter was, his paid newsletter was. And we did like a bunch of different tests and experiments uh, and a bunch of analytics. You know, we built like a, a forecast model, a customer lifetime value model, and came up with like a good customer acquisition goal. Uh, we started running ads on Facebook and uh, like driving that towards that CAC goal. And um, we did cross promotions. We did like user personas, like user research to develop personas, figure out like who his audience is and how to like really double down there, but also what are opportunities to expand beyond that? And we also did like a bunch of email automation. And that's ultimately what set the, the pathway towards him. Yeah. So you said something really interesting before we hit record. You talked about like Pomp's business in particular, you know, with this whole suite of products, which a lot of creators are in that position of they have maybe some sponsor revenue, maybe they have a book that's bringing in you know, some amount of money every time it sells, they might have a membership, they have a paid news, like just a whole range of things. So there's some YouTube yeah. AdSense revenue coming in and all of this. You said something interesting about the Disney model versus the Netflix model. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? And then just what you're seeing in the, like in creator business models? So there's, there's been a few uh, creators that um, we've talked to that have like alluded to the Disney business model and they have that map Yes. Uh, like all the revenue streams. Exactly. Mario, I think, has done it the best. Yep, Mario from The Generalist likes to break that one down. He's done it. it his is like extraordinarily detailed. Uh, David Perel is another one who's kind of done it. Yep. There's also people who like mention flywheels, like Packy has talked about that. And all of that is like squarely Disney's like strong strength. 
They've right. like basically acquired these big media properties and they just run it through their IP monetization flywheel. For anyone who doesn't understand that flywheel, like break it down a little bit, maybe with one of their recent acquisitions. Recent being, I guess, the last 20 years. <laughs> yeah, so Marvel, Star Wars, and Pixar. Yep. Those are the three big ones. And uh, so, you know, they'll say the Star Wars, which is like IP mecca. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, they, they do Star Wars. They incorporate that into their theme parks. They make a ton of merch around it. They do a ton of different shows and movies around it. So, you know, more content. And um, these worlds have infinite story possibilities because it's rooted in the characters. And so they really just like, you know, hammer that out and are able to monetize it because they've learned now how to do that with Disney. That's that's like back to like 1950s when that image was made by Walt Disney. Uh, He basically saw like how these like different revenue streams and consumer touch points all kind of fed on each other and were intertwined in a way that like created an incredibly valuable collection of products. And they, they all help each other. And I think that's really fascinating. Netflix, on the other hand, has been like adamantly anti-ads. They, they are just now starting to monetize via like games and uh, mm-hmm. merchandise, but it took them a while to do it. Like they made a lot of TV shows, originals, uh, their own productions that they could have done it earlier. Um, but it took something like Stranger Things for them to really start leaning in that direction. Right. So Disney is all about having this bit of IP, right? Starting with Mickey Mouse and then, you know, but going through to everything else. It could be Toy Story, yep. um, you know, Buzz, Light- Buzz Lightyear from Toy Story or whatever. This IP that you can use in absolutely everything, right? It goes through the whole ecosystem, flywheel, whatever you want to talk about. And it's centered in stories that creates these great characters that they can use. Netflix, you would also say, is centered in stories, you know, whether it's Stranger Things or any of their other originals. But you're right that these these characters don't come out. Like the there's the umbrella. You know, they're trying to get you more content so that your Netflix subscription is worth more so that you keep paying for it or you pay the new price for it. But they, they don't do anything around merch, video games, theme parks, all of that. Before I think we recorded, we were talking about the price increase and, uh, you know, it's getting up to 20 bucks. And at some point you hit the maximum threshold. You can't raise subscription prices anymore. You have to introduce new revenue streams to keep growth going. And I think there's still a lot, like if you look at like the, the cost of pay TV and you look at like Netflix, Amazon, and these other uh, subscription products, there's still room, I think, to increase price. Mm-hmm. But at some point you're going to run out. You have to introduce new revenue streams. So there is like an interesting saying from within like Netflix where they said they were trying to become HBO before HBO could become them. Meaning this was when they were t- like before they started making their own shows because yep. it was a tech company. You know, Netflix at its, right. its heart it probably still is a tech company. Like having been part of Crunchyroll forever and having a small team of engineering and, and product and trying to reach the threshold that Netflix was was reaching in terms of like video player and payments, everything under the hood. It was incredibly difficult. And I think they still are like way ahead of the curve from a technical mm-hmm. standpoint, but they're, um, they're definitely a media company. They're making global hit shows. Uh, so I do think they are like 
certainly moving in the direction of Disney and HBO. Right. And both of them are moving in the direction of Netflix. You know, they all have their own streaming services now. They used to like try to outsource the the technical development, but now all that's part of the, the company. So um, it's all kind of converging. So bringing this back to the, the business models that you see with different creators, um, if we're saying like we're taking Pomp and putting him solidly in that uh, that Disney business model where he's got, you know, a wide range of products and ecosystem that's feeding itself. Who's an example of a creator that comes to mind in the Netflix model where they're maybe doing the all in one, like a single price. It's easier to understand what you're buying from them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who comes to mind? You know, it's a good question. There's definitely some of our customers that only monetize via subscription on their newsletter. Yeah. Um, and so like one of them is does uh, investigative journalism. So he's definitely not doing advertising because I think that kind of undercuts his mission. Yep. And he's not really, I mean, he could probably launch like t-shirts and people would wear them, but it's a little of a weird setup there. So, but I'm, it's like more and more rare because I think it's becoming easier to launch these new revenue streams. Now I, I do think like you got to, you know, in, in the conversation with Mario, it's, he mentioned like everything you do has downside. If you launch yeah. a new revenue stream, it's extra effort. You got to do so consciously and, and with awareness. Uh, there was a conversation that I had with Nathan Vasquez and Dan Shipper who run every um, so newsletter bundle. And this is when they were super early on. It was just, I think their two newsletters, um, divinations and super organizers. And maybe yeah. they were about to bring in a third one, but it was super early. And they were talking about you know, how we keep expanding by adding on more newsletters to the bundle. And then that grows the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and I think subscribers, they were like, maybe one newsletter had 15,000 and the other had 10,000 subscribers. And I remember talking to them and I, I kind of came up with an analogy of like, do you want to build a strip mall or a skyscraper? Yeah. And one's not better than the other necessarily, right? We're, we're increasing, I don't know where you go with the analogy. We're increasing square footage of real estate that we can rent out and, you know, all of that, yeah. but it's, do you want to have all these different products or do you want to pour it all into a single thing and scale it up where all the effort goes into that? Um, yeah. And I think it's just an important thing for creators to decide which one they want, because you can exactly what you're saying. You can either easily add revenue by adding in these other channels, or uh, you can like, that's the upside. And the downside is that you can distract yourself and you can avoid the total growth. So yeah, what do you what do you think on on that model? For every, I think it's um, what you're saying is really interesting from a programming strategy standpoint, not only from a product or revenue stream standpoint. So for every, you know, they've been adding new writers, yep. and it's a like it's interesting to think through. They could be the definitive home for like productivity. So like what I think that I think that's Dan's newsletter, Super Organizers. Yep. And you can just hire a bunch of people who write about productivity and it's like literally don't, it's like the best service for that question. Or you could add writers that write about other things, but kind of fit the tone and vibe of the every brand. Um, and that is like more of an audience expansion tactic than it is like really going for like the 100% market share of productivity. So I think as a creator, you, you probably want to think through like, 
am I going to try to be the definitive source on a very specific topic? Or am I going to try to like expand audience and keep it a little, I don't want to say surface level, but um, less, there's a trade-off, you know, like you, you can't, if you're not focusing on one specific question, you're not going to be able to cover it mm-hmm. in the depth that you could have, you know, you were otherwise. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also realizing how high the ceiling is, you know, in some of these spaces, right? Like a lot of newcomers to the newsletter space, you would grow a newsletter to 5,000, 10, even 25,000 subscribers. And it feels really big and it's amazing, right? Because if you think of a room of, or like 25,000 people, you know, that's a small college stadium, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, and, and so that's insane. But then also you look at the big newsletters, uh, the biggest ones out there. So the James Clears and Tim Ferriss's and Gretchen Rubin's of the world and all of those, those are all million subscriber plus newsletters, you know? And so you realize like, do I want to expand the footprint or yeah. do I want to stay narrow? And like the, the ceiling is actually incredibly high. I'd actually, I'd like to ask you a question. So, yeah. you know, you know, Tim Ferriss, I've read mm-hmm. a bunch of his books. If he were starting today, do you think he would still publish the books or do you think he would just distribute the content over newsletters and have it be more fluid and like bi-directional mm-hmm. And maybe after releasing it via the newsletters, at some point he releases like a Kindle version or, or published book. Yeah. So I, I think it's a super interesting thing. And all you and I can do is speculate on it. You know, we need to get to, <laughs> to say for sure. But there's something that happens when these, even these really large newsletters or podcasts, right? Like maybe not the absolute biggest of like the Joe Rogans, but you go, people you might listen to every episode of realize they're still incredibly niche, you know, yeah. in the broader thing. Like I always make the joke, like there's internet famous and then there's actual famous, Yeah, you know, like in, if you go in the exact right circle, I can be internet famous, and but no one's going to ever recognize me. Like I've had one time I was walking into uh, uh, the Delta lounge at JFK and someone was like, Nathan Barry, you know, it turns out they were going to the same conference that I was. We're like, we were about <laughs> to be on the same flight, you know, <laughs> like, um, and, right. That's internet famous in a specific niche and Tim Ferriss and James Clear and all these, they're still just, just right. Internet famous versus, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right. Being actual, actual. <laughs> um, so going to the question about what Tim has done is I think, I don't know which is better to come first, but to get to the level of fame that I think Tim has, you, you need the book. You have to have something, right? Books start to bridge this gap from internet famous to actual famous. When James was building, James Clear was building his newsletter, he focused so much, grow the newsletter, grow the writing, right on that. But then it was when the book Atomic Habits came out um, that that really catapulted him. And the newsletter became this uh, backbone for it. But like the book is what was in a new format that the broader world understands. And so for example, like Atomic Habits last year was the most popular book on Amazon. Like number one, all categories, most popular book sold on Amazon. And a newsletter can't have that reach, at least not yet, right? It's not giftable in the same way. And so I, I think you need that thing, the newsletter, the, or sorry, the book, the TV show, something, if you want to break through into like popular culture. And so I think for our work, he did that, did that for Tim. I'm just wondering like if 10 years, 20 years in the future, 
like if things are more fluid and like if somebody who's in high school today, they're growing up with the internet and in a very different way than probably you or I did. Yep. If they even read books. And I know this is like a multi-century, you know, people are like books are done, but um, I don't know. Yeah. I, Cause we work with some people who are publishing a book or have already published a book and they're trying to figure out the dynamic between the two. I right. think about this with music as well. I know, I know you have a bunch of musicians on ConvertKit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some that I follow on Substack, not that we're working with, but I, I'm just curious how they're like using it. Um, uh, Jeff Tweedy and uh, Perfume Genius or two that I, that I follow. And they're doing really interesting stuff with like releasing music to their paid subscribers or lyrics and like getting comments. They have open threads where they communicate with their, with their audience. It's all like really fascinating. And I think um, uh, I'm just curious how the relationship between, you know, yeah. old, more, more legacy products and like some of these newer trends converge. I have, I have two thoughts on that. One, uh, legacy products come full circle, right? Because we're both, we're on a show talking about newsletters. We spend all our time on newsletters. And to be clear, newsletters were, are, at some point again will be i don't know a legacy product yes. right you know the number, amount of time that people spent saying email is dead as email has just grown like crazy you know like i love that graph that someone has where it's just like emails growth over time and then all <laughs> the like new york times 2012 you know blah blah, blah like wall street Journal, all these saying like email is dead like all the headlines all the way along as so it just keeps keeps growing so things come in and out of popularity in like the the press sense what I think is interesting about what you're saying about the artists is what things they're doing, like what is there to expand the fan base and what's there to go deeper with the fan base. Right. And so this is actually a problem that I'm curious for your take on because paid newsletters often have it of paid newsletters are all about monetizing and going deeper with the fan base. And they can be like the paid newsletter by itself is often really bad for expanding the fan base because things are behind a paywall. So creators have to be very, very intentional about that. So I I think, you know, paid products for the most part are going to go deeper with the existing fan base. A lot of newsletters are gonna do that because newsletters don't have a discovery engine. Um, Whereas something like a book, a song, uh, all of that can be a lot better for expanding the fan base. Yes. For example, if I'm trying today, I'm trying to go on I don't know, we pick a TV show, Good Morning America, something like that, right? Uh, I want to go on there. They're going to be like, tech founder has a newsletter and a pod. like, no. <laughs> but, you know, if it's like, oh, new book coming out, James Clear, whoever, right? They have a new book coming out and they're or like, I come out with a book, the future of the creator economy and all this. It's now in a format that they understand. And they're like, oh, we have authors on our show. Yeah. We don't have newsletter creators on, but at some point we will. Right. But mm-hmm. like the book puts it into a format that they expect and understand. And so then they're like, oh, great. He slots into the predefined thing. Yeah. So I think it's about knowing if something goes is for connecting deeper with the audience or uh, expanding the audience. And then how can you package your material in a way that whatever your group that you're trying to break into expects it in that format? Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I just, I just uh, speculated a whole bunch. <laughs> First, I would say like pay TV, Good Morning America probably has the same demo as like book people who read books a lot. So right. that, would, that would be a good fit. But I, 
I'm really fascinated, like 20, 30 years down the road. I mean, that's way out there, but like, yeah, we were talking about how different 10 years ago was with Hulu, you know, like you want to go 20, 30 years in the future, but yeah. So I think you, you hit on like an interesting decision, super important decision around if you're going to do a paid newsletter, where do you draw the line in the sand between what paying members get and free subscribers get? Mm -hmm. I think uh, the number one thing I would say is uh, there's no universal right answer, which is a total cop out. So I'll, I'll describe more stuff. But um, I would also say don't push too much value behind the paywall early. We see people who you know launch a paywall when they have like you know 100 subscribers, 100 email lists. You know, building a creator product or becoming a creator is very much like trying to start a company, I think, or start a startup. And in that early phase, don't think about growth or monetization. You are value hacking. You know, you are trying to deliver value to a very specific audience. And you have to get to a point where you've established that. And you can't, like, you really shouldn't be thinking about, you know, referral programs or uh, what your price of your subscription will be uh, before that. So I think that is one of the things we see very, uh, very common. Um, and then in terms of like, let's say you're, you're further along, you have 5,000, 10,000 email lists, hundreds of paid subscribers. You're, you're really like testing, feeling out where to put the paywall, what to put behind, what to put in front, right. how to spend your time really. Like that's, this is what sits behind that question. Um, and there, I think there is like no right answer. You have to go into it with an open mind and flexibility and kind of like test and, and like listen to your customers and, and gradually uh, like draw the line. We see like one of our, I think our customer with the most paying subscribers has no distinction between free and paid. You get the same experience. How he frames the subscription is look at what your contribution is supporting. And it works incredibly well for him. Because then nothing is hidden behind the, like there's not, his best content that's restricted to paid users only. And so it's not uh, like it's still able to spread. It can be shared widely on the web and, and all of that. That's yeah. really, really interesting. He gets the best of both worlds right now. Cause like he's getting right. massive audience growth cause everything is out in the open, but he's also monetizing it very well. I, I think his, his job is really hard and he has to have an impact for, to drive the subscription growth. Cause there's no right. like hidden insights or, um, that kind of stuff. So are we talking about pomp in this case or someone else? No, no. So pomp is, um, he, he does one free newsletter a week for behind the paywall. He writes a letter every day, which I think is remarkable. That's so hard. All right. And after that, he does a live two hour YouTube show daily. Yes. It's insane. I, I, I don't, I haven't seen anybody like kind of match that type of output. Right. Um, but uh, he's more towards the other end of the spectrum. I think the best per example of somebody on the, like towards the other end is Lenny, who is kind like when you said the who's running a Netflix style media business, he came up, but he also does like a cohort class. So you kind of got to roll him out, but he packs an enormous amount of value in his paid subscription. And, uh, you know, he has like deals in there. He has a very vibrant Slack community. I I'm sure he like... Yep. Most listeners are probably well aware of it, but like 
Um, that is a big trend that we're seeing. You know, Mario just announced like the community, uh, the stuff he's doing with his community. And we're seeing more and more people shift subscription value behind the community aspect of it. And it's really about right. like, for like helping connect people, uh, like think about like a conference or some of the value that comes out of like networking and stuff like that, but being able to do it within Slack and Discord and these other community uh, channels. And then of course, Lenny has a bunch of content behind the paywall. He mm-hmm. does one free newsletter a month. And I think he does two a week paid uh, with one of those being a summary of all the stuff that's going on within Slack, which is incredibly important because right. his community has grown to thousands, several thousand members and the ability to like find the, the nugget of insight or like the thing that really matters becomes incredibly hard. So he's just like packaged that as a, as a big part of his subscription as well. I think he's a really um, good example of the Netflix model uh, in this. And as you said, right, he has a cohort based course. He has some other things. So it's not like completely pure of a single product. But for the most part, the subscription is the, well, I don't know, um, revenue. revenue driver, like say it's 80% of yeah. 90% of effort, revenue, all of that. And then he's building flywheels within that, right? So the, yeah. the community is a big thing you're getting, but it's not a separate add-on. It's just, this is the price. And then also one of the emails is to drive people back to the community. Because the hardest thing when you launch a community is keeping it engaged and active and going and so having that, you know, closing the loop and then also, you know, his Thursday email or whatever it is, like he's not having to come up with original content because the community is driving that. So there's a nice, a nice flywheel there. So yes, I'll, I'll accept, like, I think Lenny works well as the Netflix model. Um, but then you can also add in, you know, a cohort based course if you want to, as you have. Yes. I was going to say like the cohort based course probably doesn't exist without the newsletter, but not vice versa. The other thing that's kind of interesting about Lenny, and we're seeing this with more of our customers, they're kind of like shifting the learning and development budget from like not so great products towards incredibly valuable uh, uh, content or community. And I think it's a no brainer. Like Lenny's subscription is $15 a month. And I remember like all the stuff we were doing on Udemy and like books, buying books as part of like learning and development. That was probably hundreds of bucks per employee. Uh, and not great products. This is like a no brainer. And I think that's an enormous growth opportunity for creators. If they can figure out like how to encourage their customers to expense this through work. Um, and that, that works also with, you know, one of the ideas that we, we talked about with Pomp was like, we should reach out to like Goldman Sachs and say, Hey, we'll give you like a group subscription. Cause we know like, you're trying to get into crypto and figure out what was going on. This was right. a, a while back. I'm sure they're, you know, caught up now. But uh, I think there's a lot there with trying to figure out like how to make this like a easier purchase decision for for your customers. And if you can if you can bend it towards like professional value, then that's a big budget unlock. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the creators who do that well. Uh, there's a line that I used to always say. Um, like you want to teach a skill that makes money to people who have money, right? So if we're teaching, um, well, using Lenny as an example, using teaching product management to people who are actively using that in their career and they're working in tech and they're making a good salary, like 
we're good. You know, skill to make some money to people who have money. If you're teaching knitting to teenagers, like not such a good market, you know, it's, it's going to be a little challenging to monetize and you get the in between, right? If, you, if you're teaching career skills to college students, right? Skill that makes lots of money, like negotiation, all of that. College students, probably not that eager to pay for it. Not a lot, you know, you need to find the parents or the career center. Or not a lot of disposable income there either. For, yeah, exactly. For- um, and so like the skill that makes money to people who have money is really good. And I like the twist that you have on it of, and get it so they can pay with the company credit cards. Yeah. Are there things like any creators that you've seen make that shift where maybe they started teaching, you know, a skill that they wanted to, and then they were able to package it better. So it was more appealing to, uh, you know, someone buying with the company card. I haven't seen anybody like shift their programming strategy. I think a lot of people are shifting more value to the community aspect as a, yeah. as a way of saying like, Hey, we're going to help you connect with people who can help you do your job better. Um, some other examples of people who I think are in this camp are uh, just engaged with technically. I think he mm-hmm. writes about stuff that helps people with their jobs. Sarah from Fem Street, I think is another one. Um, and I, you know, I could think of some more of, you know, we want to spend time on it, but yeah. Um, I, but no, I haven't really seen anybody say like, Oh, you know what? I'm going to like kind of pivot towards a new type of content to. Yeah. I wonder, I'm going to keep my eye out. Cause I'm wondering who's done that over time. Another angle on this that I'm, I'm curious from all the creators that you followed and watching the space, what are some of your favorite monetization methods? Let's say I have uh, 20,000 subscribers on a newsletter. Uh, they're pretty engaged. Um, how would you go about advising that creator on paid newsletter, job board, course, rolling fund, uh, sponsors, <laughs> you know, like it just goes on and on of what you could, uh, what you could do. Yeah. How would you encourage them to think about monetization? Honestly, like sponsorships are probably the easiest place to start. Mm-hmm. If you're committed to doing this over a long period of time, I would recommend paid subscriptions, but know yeah. that it, you're establishing a ongoing relationship, you know, and you shouldn't take that lightly. It, it basically, basically you're signing up to produce the, the newsletter frequently in perpetuity. Now we are seeing people who like take PTO and stuff. Like one of one of our customers uh, did the Continental Divide Trail, which is like a six month backpacking trip, and basically paused subscriptions and flipped them right back on, and it's, it's you know back to normal. But um, I think in general, you sh- it's a big commitment to launch paid subscriptions. I would not really think about uh, community until you're really ready to take that on. I think that'll take a lot of time. Um, merch, I would, unless you're like Barstool, uh, if you, if you have like a polarizing media company, merch could be good, but otherwise I would kind of steer clear. Um, I think events, if we can get back to like in-person stuff are really special. You know, one thing that I absolutely loved about Wait But Why is he did this Wait But High event, uh, global event, which were like local meetups. So I think what he did, this is this was a while back. So um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm going to remember correctly. He has some great blog posts on it. He like sent out a survey to his audience, which are spread across the world, like virtually yep. every country. And he said like, he, he asked questions to get to know the audience better. And then um, he organized local meetups. And I'm, I'm not sure if it was him. It might've been somebody else. Because I think it was an enormous amount of work. Uh, organized local meetups across the world. And, and mostly like, urban areas. That to me is like 
really special. When you cross the chasm between, you know, virtual relationships to in-person relationships, I think that's that's kind of magical. So I'd yeah. love, you know, if we can get past COVID, I would love to see more of that happen. And I'm sure that would present like a lot of, you know, monetization opportunities. I think we're seeing that, you know, with podcasts, uh, I think of um, Sam Parr and Sean Purry with the My First Million podcast, they're like starting to do some meetups and more community type stuff. And that that's big. I know for ConvertKit, it was huge when we did, um, we did a whole campaign of meetups. And I, I think we ha- had 25, 20, maybe over the course of a year. Um, yeah. Like community led, but like backed and promoted by us. Um, yeah. and some were 10 people, some were 50 people, you know, um, a big range. And then we rolled that into starting on conference and being able to say, yes. okay, met people in person. Now there's like the four people from Austin who are going to come into the conference and the, you know, 12 people who, you know, who already know each other in whatever other city. Um, actually Tim Urban is our, uh, keynote speaker for our conference, uh, this next year. So awesome. hope fingers crossed that it all happens. <laughs> but, That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it's, you can do it non-virtual. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I going back to the monetization question. I think it's it's a good problem to have because once you have the audience, there's so many opportunities. Like yeah. you could, you know, attention is what all the brands want. You know, and so once you have the audience, you have that. But it's really important to find something that maps to the way you want to spend your time. Yeah, right? like I've seen a bunch of people start out, you know, a paid newsletter. And then get six, 10 weeks into it and go, oh, I don't want a job again. I don't want, you know, I don't want to like have to send this out every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Because I, you know, got 10,000 people or five, like who, who paid for it. But then there's other people. Um, I think of Bern Hobart, who's, uh, who writes The Diff. <laughs> as best as I can tell from interviewing him and just being a subscriber, like he's just like, Deep research multiple times a week, easy, done, no problem, you know? And so like making, for him, it's a great business model, whereas for someone else, it might not be. Can't be a hobby, you know, like it's, if you're, if you want to do a newsletter as a hobby, it should totally be free and you might not even want to really monetize it. Uh, But yeah, like if you're doing a paid subscription, like the diff, it's full-time commitment. I have a community question that just came to mind. Yeah. What do you think about uh newsletters or brands under a personal name versus a broader brand uh yeah. especially as it relates to community right going to the tim urban meetup mm-hmm. is interesting kind of weird going to the wait but why or the wait but high meetup yep totally makes sense what do you think how would you advise a creator on on that question i would i think the brand almost always works better um, the, so the first wave of, of like creators that I really liked, Wait But Why with Tim Urban, Stratechery, Ben Thompson, Brain Pickings, uh, Maria Popova, I believe. Yep. Um, they, and, um, Farnham Street. Uh, Shane Parrish. Yes. They all had brands and it was usually, they were just running it themselves. Yep. Or maybe they have one person helping out as well. Like I know Tim, uh, works with Andrew Finn. Um, yeah. but like the content was mostly being created by one person. And they uh, still published it through a brand name. I think that allows for um, a little bit of like long-term flexibility with what you can do with it. 
like if uh, Farnham, if like Ben Thompson wanted to bring on, like start a podcast with somebody else, yeah. um, it he doesn't have to change the name. Right. Uh, you know, it could be like the Stratechery podcast with this person and that person. So I think it gives you a little more optionality further out. That said, I do think what's special about the creator world is like the direct relationship between the audience and the person behind it. Mm-hmm. And that's like one thing that we see is the health metrics, like those retention rates that we were talking about earlier. Um, those are way better in the creator world than the streaming video world. Yes. Because like people feel like they have a, like a, they're paying somebody directly. Um, and that kind of relationship leads to like higher open rates, um, higher conversion uh, from free to paid and uh, higher retention rates. So the customer lifetime value for the creator businesses are way higher than some of the general media companies. Now, the difference is the scale. Like obviously, you're, the absolute volume of subscribers you're going to get is going to be much lower. But the, the per uh, subscriber economics are you know, much, much, much higher. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the question is, how do you get the brand loyalty um, and the flexibility and all that from a brand with also the personal connection and the initial easy, early, not easy, nothing in the creator world is easy, Uh, (laughs) simple early growth from like building an audience as just you. And especially because one advantage of building an audience under your name is as your interests change, it's easier to bring your audience with you. Um, but I'm thinking about that with these different creators, uh, and we talked about Lenny a lot, you know, it's Lenny's newsletter, the prompt letter, Lenny's newsletter. Um, I think Mario, the generalist and Packy, not boring are great counter examples of that. And it just like, you can do a little bit more like a not boring meetup is really compelling. The pomp letter meetup. I don't know. You know, it's like, yeah. You have, I think it's the individual, right? If Tim Ferriss wants to host a meetup uh, or Pomp wants to host a meetup, they've reached this level of um, stardom, fame. Yeah. That like they will attract those people, right? Mm -hmm. But if you and I want to host a meetup, we probably can, right? But the Nathan and Reed meetup like doesn't have the same ring to it because we're, it's not the same level of fame. And so I think the brand allows you to have the meetup and all of that earlier, right? A generalist, the generalist meetup or the not boring meetup. You can do that a lot earlier. Not say you can't do it with the level of, with a personal brand. You just have to have a bigger audience. And so I think people like Packy and Mario, Shane Parrish are walking this line really well of having a brand and then their face and name is right behind it. They're not like hiding in the background. Like when I think the generalist, I always think Mario, you know, not boring. I think of Packy instantly. I'm not like, oh yeah, that's an interesting media brand. You know, it's like, no, I think of Packy right away. I think if you have a brand as well, I think it shifts it a little more towards the audience being able to interact with each other versus being there to interact with the creator and only the creator. Like um, Pomp did this thing in uh, New York where he did a pizza, Bitcoin pizza giveaway thing. And I think a lot of people went to talk to Pump, not to yeah. talk to each other. If like Packy did uh, like a Web3 meetup, I think a lot of people would go and definitely want to talk to Packy, but maybe 
uh, want to also communicate with other people that were there. Right. Yep. I like that. Okay. Another question I've been thinking about, and then I'm realizing we should probably start to wrap up since <laughs> this, this is good. We can talk for a long time. Um, as we talk about creator business models, there's an opportunity for confusion, especially as people go into a lot of like a big range of products. You can easily have, you know, not just three or four products, but we, we see creators who have 10, 12, 14 distinct products out there. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what you think about that. And then also, since you worked at HBO, I always wondered about like HBO Go versus HBO Max. And I remember being a like a consumer at that time and being really yeah. confused. And I'm sure it made sense internally. But I wonder if there's any overlap between uh, like the confusion of the products that you're selling, you know, in the streaming world from also in the creative world. So I can't, I don't know if there's much overlap there. HBO was a very unique situation where you had HBO Go, HBO Now, HBO Max, HBO through your pay TV bundle. <laughs> Go right. was like you buy it from Comcast and you use Go as like your DVR streaming platform. Now was their DTC launch initially. And then Max was DTC and Warner Brothers and Turner and all that stuff. Right. Massively complicated. Like if you're trying to launch a brand, this is not the environment you want to do it in. You know, and so we fought through massive user confusion early on. Um, HBO Go has been deprecated. HBO Now, I think, has turned into HBO Max, like the app. So chipping away at it, but it was a huge problem early on. Okay, so um, multiple business streams, you're just going to create each new revenue stream creates overhead for you. Mm-hmm. Both time commitment, how do you like improve it, maintain it over time. Um, so it's your time is zero sum, you have to make a sacrifice at some point to say like, if I'm gonna launch a podcast, I'm not gonna be able to spend as much time on just the newsletter. And right. so you just have to and you're not gonna it's rare to unlock a revenue stream that's bigger than your kind of core one at the moment. And the other thing to think about, like at, at Hulu and Crunchyroll, there was a little bit of internal friction between teams that worked on the free product, advertising-based, and the paid product. Because like you, you can all of the value you're putting into the world, you have to decide where it sits. And so there's a bit of a zero-sum nature between... Uh, you know, uh, the paid product and and the free product. Um, And that created like some weird internal dynamics. And so, you know, if you're not, if you don't have like a huge team of people working on these two separate products, it's just going on in your head. You may end up having like tough choices to make around like, what do I push to my free audience and my, and help my advertisers first? What do I push to my paid subscribers and make sure that, you know, I, I retain them and continue to deliver enough value to like, you know, uh, nurture that revenue stream. Yeah. I think like almost drawing a Venn diagram of how, how does this product feed the other products? Like, how does it make it better? How, um, how does it fit within my time? You know, like if I'm going to do pull a pump and say like, okay, I'm now going to do a two hour daily video feed. Then it's like, okay, uh, where in the rest of my ecosystem is that content coming from? So when I sit down to turn on the camera, I already know what I'm talking about because it's fed yeah. from something else or it's like, no, this is totally off on its own. I'm going to have to create all this new content. Um, that's right. And that's going to be totally a pain. That's a good way of thinking about it. Cause like, you know, Pomp's doing the daily newsletter by forming that and putting that together. He's probably getting ideas and stuff to talk about on the show. So I think if they are helping each other, 
there's degrees of how zero sum it is, I guess. Like if right. there's overlap in preparation and like putting stuff together uh, for the two types of content, then that's better than like, I'm doing this and this radically different thing over here. Yeah, for sure. Okay, the last thing I want to touch on uh, briefly is metrics. We're coming in to help a creator's business. Let's say they're they're earning a full time living off of it. You know, it's at that point. I don't know what it is. Maybe the eighty thousand to two hundred thousand dollar a year kind of range. What are the first metrics that you want to uh, either have them show you or, or you to like dig in and calculate for you to understand kind of the health of their business, what opportunities they have in front of them, and then how to think about growth. If I were just like valuing the health of your business, mm -hmm. I would look at um, your total email list. Let's start there. The growth rate of it, um, like or how, at what velocity are you bringing new people on? That's really important. Right. Um, and then if you're a paid newsletter, what's your paid subscriber as a percent of um, your total email list? Yep. We see some pretty wide ranges there. If you're below, usually... God, I mean, it's so hard to make like universal statements yeah. here. If you're, but if you're below 5%, I think you might have some room to inch that up. We see it go all the way up to 20%, hmm. uh, which I think is like really, really high. That's crazy high. Crazy high. Um, but so I wouldn't, I think 5 to 10%, which is like a very common range that I think is quoted. That's a good range. We see a lot of people in that range. The other thing to think about though is uh, ARPU. Like if you have a really low cost subscription, you're gonna be able to like get more subscribers. You know, like that's usually, that's yeah. um, the higher price point you have, the, the harder it is to, you know, um, get a ton of people as paid subscribers uh, relative to your total email list. Um, so those, those are kind of like the upfront things to look at. And then if, like, I think the most confused, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the most confused thing about like evaluating the health of a biz, uh, like a media business is churn um, and right. over-focusing on monthly churn rate, which is uh, just quickly cancels as a percentage of your like average total subscriber paying subscriber base. That's going to like fluctuate for a lot of different reasons that are not that meaningful to whether you are actually getting better at having paying subscribers stick around for a longer duration of your of their subscription. Mm -hmm. So look at it based on cohorts, like group them into the first month that somebody pays and then look at what share of that initial group pay you in month two, pay you in month three. And it should be like an exponential curve, not linear. You know, like the likelihood that somebody cancels in month 12 is extremely low. And the, the likelihood that somebody cancels in month one is actually pretty high. Mm -hmm. um, and so it should it's not linear. Uh, it's, it's exponential. Um, so what we what we see there, if you if you have a bunch of um, monthly subscribers, a good like uh, I guess baseline is like eighty percent retained into month two, seventy percent retained into month three, sixty three percent, and so on. And you can kind of like, like carry that, out. that off, yeah. So that you know, like whatever that that number in month eleven should be really pretty similar to the number in month twelve. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you have annual subscriptions, we're seeing about 60 to 70% renew into the second year. And we're seeing okay. a lot more people with annual subscriptions. Like uh, most of the streaming services are entirely monthly. And, you know, Spotify, I think is mm -hmm. mostly, if not all, monthly. 
So this like shift in focus towards annual subscriptions is, is really interesting and uh, certainly great from a cash flow perspective for the creators. Right. Um, and it kind of locks people in to that first year and allows you to improve the product mm-hmm. for, for an extended period of time before the renewal. So we see, you know, roughly 60 to 70% renew into year two. The engagement metrics are super interesting as well. Um, and that is kind of platform dependent, you know, in terms of open rates. All the email metrics, like, you know, I look at with like a pretty decent amount of scrutiny because like there's so much going on there. Um, and they're, you know, opening an email is not really that valuable. Um, it's not really a great sign of somebody actually engaging or, or reading the email. Um, but what we what we do kind of track are like different engagement cohorts. So like what share of your email list are not opening emails at all? What share are opening like, you know, 10%? What share 20 to 50? And then the most important thing that we look at is like your 100% open rate club. Who's opening every single email you send? Those right. are like your evangelists and advocates. Um, and if you have a high share of people opening 100% of your emails, that's a really great sign. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Identifying those people and and then even finding special things to make them feel even more special, you know, giving them more content, giving them early access to something. Um, all of that's really good. Yeah, just one last thing. I think ConvertKit does an amazing job of keeping the email list engaged. And like if somebody goes cold, don't like mind removing them or at least push the option to unsubscribe. Right. I remember I saw uh, James Clear on Twitter where he said like my email growth, annual email growth went from like big number to a little bigger number, big, a little bigger number, and then a huge year over year decline. And people were like, what happened? And he was like, oh, I, re- I removed like 100,000 people from my email list that weren't yeah. opening emails. And I think people were like, oh my God, <laughs> like that's a, that's a serious move. I think that's really smart. You know, uh, and then I, I heard you mention, um, was it Om Malik who was like, I'm going to only have 10,000 people as part yes. of my email list. And you <laughs> have to open it to, to remain a part of it. Um, I think that's a really great idea. But yeah, don't be scared to like manage your email list and even remove people if they're not engaging. Yeah, I, I think it's such an important thing. It helps your deliverability. It means that you're only paying attention to your engaged fans, you know, um, and then if you open rate is getting more challenging as a metric because of Apple's changes and all, yes. all that. there's all these creators who are talking about my open rates going up and I'm like, everyone's open rate is going up. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we send a billion emails a month. Like I can tell you like it's inching up about 1% per month, you know, yeah. maybe I'm going to out on that, but maybe I'll link to it in the show notes. But you know, really if you focus on your engaged subscribers, that that metric, then it's not painful to cut people out because it's like, look, they weren't an engaged subscriber anyway. So, um, all right, I should let you get uh, on with your day and, and running a company. So on that topic, where should people go to find out more about Yem and find out, like read your writing on uh, creator business models and monetization and everything else? Yeah, so uh, joinyem.com is the site uh, and Yem is Y-E-M. Um, and we have a blog over there or a newsletter. Uh, so we, we're trying to like share insights and stuff, uh, both from like, you know, company building perspective, but also what we're learning with some of the emails that we're sending. So that's mm-hmm. a good place to um, to follow us. And then I have a Twitter account. It's at Reed Tandy, uh, T-A-N-D-Y. And I'm not great at using Twitter, but I'm trying to figure it out. So if you want to like watch me try to, uh, you know, embarrass myself, uh, you can follow me there. 
<laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for coming on and I'm excited to follow more of your stuff as well. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast.